3: Warning, this podcast contains explicit language and details acts of violence. Listener discretion is advised. The Los
1: Angeles Sheriff's Department has a cancer festering inside of it. Deputy gangs are sustained by leadership that often goes along with the bad behavior. The cancer has only metastasized. One gang begets another gang begets another The Vikings influenced the Jump Out Boys, the 3,000 Boys influenced the 2,000 Boys, and the 2,000 Boys influenced the Executioners. Former 2,000 Boy Andy Toon founded the Executioners. They've been operating since 2016, terrorizing the streets of Compton, a predominantly Black and Latina city in Los Angeles County. Those demographics are important because for this deputy gang, Matching tattoos are what signify membership in the group. It's a skeleton, engulfed in flames, carrying an assault rifle that happens to be wearing a Nazi-style helmet. Women and Black people aren't allowed to join the gang. This racism, this hate, has even been acknowledged under oath.
4: Do you have any ill feelings toward African Americans in general?
5: I I do, sir. LA is not safe!
1: This is a tradition of violence, a history of deputy gangs inside the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. The voice you heard just a moment ago belongs to Deputy Samuel Aldama, Aldama has been involved in brutalizing and killing Compton residents on multiple occasions. You'll hear about him throughout this episode. That audio clip of him was recorded during a sworn deposition in 2018. He revealed that he and more than 10 other deputies at the station shared the executioner tattoo. In previous court proceedings, he's chalked up matching tattoos to be, quote, serendipity, and says that deputies got the tattoos to show off hard work done in the department. This is Jaime Juarez, an executioner's boss or shot caller, being deposed by attorney
3: Alan Romero. Have you seen other people with that tattoo on their bodies? Name all the people you've seen that tattoo on.
6: Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, Jose Sandoval, Jesse Sandoval, Omar Cabarubias. uh let me think, James Cross, Ruben Jimenez, Edwin Barajas, Taylor Ingersoll, uh, Samuel Aldama, Mizrain, that's M-I-V-R-A-I-N, Orego, I said from the top of my head, sir
3: have you ever been present when another deputy got that tattoo you mean as it was being administered yes yes okay where were those tattoos administered uh at a home okay and whose home was that it was uh, a different homes was the same tattoo artist used for all those tattoos of the individuals you just named no How many different tattoo artists administered the tattoos on the individuals that you just identified? Approximately four. Four or five. Have you ever been involved in deciding who gets the exhibit two tattoo?
6: Uh, Yes. So it's the uh, pretty much the line deputies, the deputies that work patrol, that they decide if they they see a deputy who is a leader at the station who conducts, conducts himself in a uh, professional manner, who serve the uh, public and the department with honor and respect. Uh, they conduct ethical, proactive police work. They're a leader. They uh, step up during critical incidents. They mentor younger deputies. Uh, that, those are the, the deputies they, uh, they they decide on.
3: When you say they decide on who is they, who decides who gets it?
6: It changes. It's pretty much the deputies assigned to the line. They call it the line who are actually working patrol.
3: Does someone get nominated to get that tattoo by someone who already has that tattoo? I wouldn't say the
6: word nominated, but they will, will bring them up, yes.
3: Bring them up where or how?
6: could be in the... Uh, I mean, whenever they have lunch or if they're around other people, they'll, they'll talk about them.
3: How many... What parties related to the Exhibit 2 tattoo have you been present at? Uh, Approximately seven.
1: In 2014, an alleged associate of the 3,000 Boys was working patrol at the Compton Station. Armando Diaz was one of three deputies who took part in the first incident tied to the 3,000 Boys. He and three other deputies beat a handcuffed Velton Boone a 49 year old black man in April of 2008. Boone's case was settled for just $950, which taxpayers paid for. Diaz attacked Barry Montgomery, a 30 year old black man, on July 14, 2014. Here's Barry's attorney, Joe Von Blacknell.
5: Barry is a, um, a special needs. He's a very small person, he's about five, two, maybe 120 pounds, maybe. He very rarely speaks. Um, at the time, Barry is probably around 30 years old. Some officers saw him in the park. So the officers see Barry, they approach him. So you can have a conversation with Barry and Barry might turn and walk away from you during the conversation. You might talk to him and he won't look at you. Um, or you talk to him and he won't respond back. Or if he does respond back, it's a, you know, a grunt yes and no, you know. Uh, and so I believe the officers took his behavior as like like a challenge to their authority. So like some insubordination. The officers wind up um, tackling Barry to the ground and pretty severely beating him up to the point. I think Barry had 11 broken bones or fractured bones, both eye sockets were fractured, one was sunken in, so he has permanent double vision. Uh, He had a fracture to his skull, ends up, we found out later that it ended up in a traumatic brain injury.
1: And Barry was charged with a crime as a result of this beating.
5: He was charged with with three three felony counts of resisting arrest by force.
1: Jovan didn't know that there were allegations of Diaz being affiliated with the 3000 boys. Are you familiar with that deputy Gang?
5: No. Now I gotta go back and look at it.
1: Executioner shot caller Jaime Juarez said in his deposition several deputies from Men's Central Jail's 3000 floor worked at the Compton Station.
3: How many deputies that you worked with at the 3000 floor ended up working with you at Compton Station later? If I had to estimate, I would have, I'm guessing, maybe between
6: 20 and 30, through the 12 years I was there.
1: Sheldon Lockett, a 24-year-old black man, became a victim of deputies in the Executioner's Gang.
4: He was not a gang person at all, not even close to a gang person. He was an athlete. He was good enough to get a college football scholarship in Alabama, and he came back here And enrolled in a junior college with an eye to play closer to home. His mother raised him properly. He gave his mother very little trouble growing up, and he loved his grandmother. He lived in the Harbor City area. He had attended uh, Narbonne High School, which was a big football high school, and then he transferred over to Morningside High School in Englewood, and he finished there. But He was a hard-working young man. He was playing football in school, and he was working in between football seasons. His mother instilled a work ethic in him.
1: This is John Sweeney. He's a civil rights lawyer that's been behind several landmark cases in Southern California. He was recently
4: inducted into the California Trial Lawyers Hall of Fame. There is a a market right near Dorsey High School called Superior Market. He was working as a shelver there, and he had gotten off work around noon, and he didn't have a car, so he took the bus, and he was going to his godmother's house over in... Compton. And so he took the bus from right in front of the Superior Market all the way to down La Brea, south of La Brea, all the way to the end of the line in Hawthorne, the last stop. And he got off and he checked his Uber or Lyft app and he didn't have enough money to get from that place over to his godmother's house in Compton. So he started walking east and apparently he was very close to having enough money because he checked it again, and he, had, and he, could, he could now make the trip.
1: He ended up getting to the house at 2.38 p.m. Sheldon was standing outside with a couple of friends when two deputies, Samuel Aldama and his partner, Ms. Misrin Orego, pulled up on Sheldon, guns pointed directly at him. He was scared, and he ran. The deputy stated in court documents that a drive-by happened several blocks away at 3.05 p.m., nearly half an hour after Sheldon was accounted for at his godmother's
4: home. He and his godbrother were inside the house uh, getting something to eat, because he, he, remember, he had just gotten off of work an hour and a half earlier around noon, and he was watching uh, Sports center. And we have his phone records, and he was surfing the Internet on a lot of uh, uh, different websites and things like that. Anything, he was doing all this in the house, and he would have to be cloned with about three or four Sheldon lockets to be on the other side of town at 3 o'clock when this other crime actually occurred. The
1: deputies heard on dispatch that someone was shot in the drive-by. A description of the suspect went out a black person in a blue beanie, driving a silver Pontiac. Again, Sheldon didn't drive. He wasn't wearing a blue beanie, either. Aldama and Orego radioed in that Sheldon was armed with a gun, chased him, and cornered him in a nearby backyard. Sheldon tried to surrender, but deputies beat him and called him
4: They unleashed a beating like you wouldn't believe on him, kicking him, calling him racial epithets. They tasered him, several times. Tasers uh, emanates uh, 50,000 volts of electricity. Well, they shot hundreds of thousands of volts through his body, both with the um, darts and they drive, uh, stunned him. And so and he has marks on his back.
1: One of the deputies rammed a baton directly into Sheldon's eye. He suffered permanent damage from the incident. Despite having an alibi, deputies thought Sheldon was responsible.
4: Who we found out later was an executioner, tattooed executioner. His job was to go to the hospital where one of the victims of the drive-by shooting was and to pick her up and do a field identification of Lockett because they had him in custody over there.
1: The county alleges the victim identified him as the shooter. Sheldon was arrested and taken into custody. His mother filed a citizen's complaint against Aldama and Orego the next day, alleging unconstitutional excessive force. The complaint was never investigated. On January 20th, 2016, Sheldon was charged with attempted murder. He was held in custody for eight months. Deputies searched Sheldon's family's home while he was incarcerated and his parents were out of the house. Deputies at the scene stated they were looking for a gun. A neighbor later told his parents what happened.
4: Michelle Davis, the mother of Sheldon Lockett, files this complaint saying that her son was falsely arrested and he was beaten. And it wasn't long after that that her house was raided. They claim they were looking for a gun that was allegedly used in this drive-by shooting. Well, first off, Sheldon Lockett was arrested within a half hour of that shooting. He didn't go back to his home. He never went back to his home until he got out of jail eight months later. So they couldn't be looking for a gun like they said they were. She, Michelle Davis, filed the complaint. She got her door kicked in. It was knocked off the hinges. She and her husband had to sleep there with a door like that, off the hinges, just propped up until they could afford to get it fixed. Now, they weren't looking for a gun. What were they looking for? It stands to reason, and I surmise, it was retaliatory. The case against him was dropped,
1: and he was eventually released. He sued L.A. County in a civil rights case in 2020, which is still pending.
4: These two deputies, they were chasing ink. They were just looking to get tattoos and solve crimes. And they figured any would do. And they just figured that we'll solve the case, look good in front of uh, the shot caller for the executioners, and we can now get our tattooed. If they didn't have one.
1: The Civilian Oversight Commission's investigation into deputy gangs have provided further insight into the executioners.
4: How do you
3: feel about working in an organization which tolerates and perhaps rewards gang behavior? Well, I'll I'll tell you, I'm I'm disheartened. This is a calling
7: for me, a noble cause. My father instituted or instilled in me values that he learned. I think that's a slap in the face of, of that work and that calling.
1: That's Larry Waldy Jr., a lieutenant with the LASD, whose own father investigated deputy gangs at the station. Waldy spoke up after he heard about the executioners celebrating a deputy shooting that left someone dead. He says he faced retaliation from Deputy Jaime Juarez.
3: Have you ever had a social meeting where you discussed a deputy having shot a member of the public? Uh, Yes. How many times? top of my head, maybe three, four times.
1: Walde testified to how much power Juarez and the executioners held at the station.
7: They had influence over scheduling, overtime, days off, uh, specific, uh, specialized positions, um, as well as uh, held certain positions within the station that, that were influential, such as detective bureau and training officers.
1: The department eventually placed Juarez on patrol duty. When they did, Juarez asked Waldie to pick someone loyal to him, and therefore to the executioners, to replace him.
3: Did you recommend a particular deputy to take over your position as scheduling deputy? I believe it was three or four names.
1: Waldie refused. He says in a lawsuit against L.A. County that this cost him a promotion for captain of the Compton Station at the direction of Sheriff Alex Villanueva.
3: Is one of your complaints that you believe you were blocked for promotion because you stood up to the executioners? Yes, sir. And uh, is it your belief that the executioners are being protected by the command staff of the LASD? Yes, sir. And uh, does that include the under sheriff Murakami and Sheriff Villanueva? Yes, sir.
1: Walde also said he was fearful in giving his testimony.
3: I have
7: seen that individuals have been retaliated against publicly without any fear, and I am actually not external to this department. I'm internal. So I think I'm within closer reach of any type of retaliation, whether it be uh, putting a case on me, um, uh, initiating an investigation on me for whatever reason that might pop up. And
1: uh, yeah, definitely for my family. He also made a surprising admission.
3: For uh, purposes of uh, candor, Uh, Do you have a tattoo? Yes, sir. And uh, what is the uh, tattoo associated with?
7: It is uh, associated with a group of deputies from Compton Station. The name is The Gladiators.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
8: Visit LiveNation.com slash to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.
1: Alleged executioners Samuel Aldama and Misbrun Orego went after another black man just seven months after they beat Sheldon Lockett.
4: All they had to do was heed the warning of Michelle Davis that these are two violent cops Dante Taylor would be alive today.
1: In August 2016, they were assigned to one of the department's summer gang suppression details. Former Deputy Angel Reynosa described what these teams do in an earlier episode. He said that the majority of cops profile people and use minor traffic violations to stop
3: vehicles. Some people don't know their rights and they kind of get taken advantage of and they just do what they're told. They have uh, suppression teams and that's all they do.
1: Aldama and Orego saw Dante Taylor, a black man wearing a Cincinnati Reds hat, walking down Wilmington Avenue near Brazil Street at night.
4: Dante Taylor was a family man, four kids, and Dante was not the biological father of any, any of them, yet he took them in as if they were his own. And he coached their basketball teams. He's from Compton. And... He had a lot of friends in that area. And above all else, he was doing nothing wrong when he was stopped by these two executioner gang members.
1: The deputies stopped Dante, thinking the hat was a gang signifier and that the C on his cap referred to the Cedar Block Pyru Gang. What happened next is murky. Aldama says that he pulled up to Dante and asked if he's on parole or probation. He says Dante told him no, pulled out a gun, and ran. However, Orego's account is slightly different. He says Aldama pulled over, started to get out of the sheriff's cruiser, and as he was stepping out, Dante pulled out a gun and ran. He doesn't mention any verbal exchange between Aldama and Dante. Dante did run away because he was scared, according to his attorney. He headed down a trail close by, overlooking an aqueduct. Aldama and Orego chased Dante, telling dispatch they're chasing a man with a gun. Exactly what they did with Sheldon Lockett. They shot Dante multiple times, killing him. LASD conducted a search of the area using two different gun-sniffing dogs, metal detectors, and deputies, but a gun was never found. No one knows exactly what happened, but attorney Greg Kirakosian spoke about this repeated phenomena in an earlier episode.
9: Apparently, the L.A. Sheriff's Department gangs have a thing that they do for shits and giggles or whatever the fuck the motive is. I really don't know. it. What they do is they will just make up that somebody had a gun. They'll make it up that they later cannot find. It's a ghost. It's gone. They saw it. They heard it. You know, they know it was there, but damn it, it disappeared and we can't find it anymore.
1: LA County settled Dante's civil case for $7 million, funded by taxpayers. LA County residents also footed the bill for attorney's fees on both sides. Orego was discharged from the department in 2017 for a 2015 DUI. He's still in court, fighting for his job back. Aldama was transferred to another station. Not all deputies were on board with the executioner's actions. Attorney Christian Contreras, who handles LASD deputy gang cases, told us about one of them.
10: The former Marine, who became a whistleblower, they were throwing rats at his car and they were ostracizing him because he outed the executioners in Compton. —
1: Deputy Ostroberto, or Art Gonzalez, started working with the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department in 2007. Art is a family man with a wife and a young, special-needs daughter. Almost a decade into his career with the Sheriff's Department, Art asked for time off to take care of his kid. At the time, Deputy Jaime Juarez an alleged shot caller within the executioners, was in charge of scheduling. He didn't give Art the time off. Instead, he was scheduled in the morning, pitting him directly against his daughter's care schedule. The morning scheduling change was allegedly made to accommodate a fellow executioner. Art was forced to use paid family leave to care for his daughter. Art came back to the department after his family leave in 2017. He says he was greeted with a new illegal quota per the vehicle code of people to arrest, courtesy of Compton Station Captain Michael Thatcher. Deputies were told to boost arrest stats, to arrest people for things that they usually wouldn't even get a citation for. And if you were a deputy with low arrest numbers, you were handed assignments no one wanted, station front desk, directing traffic detail, even patrolling the Compton Town Mall Center. In other words, retaliation. Art was partnered with Deputy Ileana Vargas, Jaime Juarez's girlfriend. Vargas would make misdemeanor arrests and immediately release the person to skew arrest stats as a favor to Captain Thatcher. Art and two other deputies took their concerns about the illegal arrest quotas to the acting watch commander, Sergeant Andy Leos. Leos raised his voice and told them, quote, you should have known, do your job. I'm trying to save your career. The group was put on traffic duty and one of them saw his opportunity to get promoted killed when Leos told the overseeing sergeant not to give the deputy the job. Meanwhile, average arrest per deputy in Compton went up from 2.5 arrests per month to seven. Juarez continued to give preferential assignments to fellow executioners. From January 2018 through January 2020, Deputy Latasha Walker, who was a gay black woman, was consistently passed over for assignment to the special operations officer position, even though she had relevant experience and had been recognized for her service. Here's Latasha in an interview in 2018.
2: Something that's difficult for me is having a specific skill set, having something that I'm extremely good at, having something that I'll excel in, and not being
11: able to do that. Right?
1: On january twenty first, twenty twenty, she was finally assigned to the SAO unit, but it was short lived. Just four months later, she was informed that she would have to leave due to budget cuts. Latasha was suspicious. Everyone else on the team was staying, and they were all executioner members, associates, or romantically involved with members of the gang. Latasha was consistently harassed by the gang. One deputy told her she should try, quote, penis from a real man. Members repeatedly referred to Black Compton residents as, quote, your people to her. And Santana block Crip street gang members as her quote, boys. Station captain Latanya Clark accused Latasha of letting a street gang member escape from the back of her car during a warrant execution at an illegal marijuana dispensary. The accusation was never documented in an email and was not investigated. Latasha filed a civil lawsuit against LA County in 2021, which is still ongoing. Some of the violence perpetrated by the executioners was caught on tape by tabloid website TMZ. In June 2020, a bystander caught three Compton deputies holding a man down on the ground behind a gray wall in a position hard to see from the street. They start beating him, kicking and punching him repeatedly, even looking around as if to see if anyone's looking. The deputies only stop when they're called out by someone watching. Witness LA, a local media outlet that covers the sheriff's department, reports that all three deputies were executioners. In July 2020, the executioners were put in the public eye again. This incident was high profile as deputies chased a black Cadillac Escalade, belonging to a famous rapper.
4: The pursuit and shootout happened around 1120 last night, starting in Compton, where the deputies tried to pull over a black Cadillac Escalade for reckless driving. That SUV registered to Keenan Jackson, best known as rapper YG.
1: YG was not in the car at the time. He tweeted he was in the studio all day and didn't hear about the incident until later. Deputies claimed the passengers had an AK-47, which was never recovered. During the pursuit, deputies shot at the Escalade.
4: A short time later, a grisly discovery along the pursuit route in Compton, the body of a man shot to death.
1: Deputies pursued the Escalade and shot at it. During the chase, sixty five year old Rick Starks was struck by gunfire and killed. Starks's mother, Mary Starks, and her community told CBS they were devastated.
3: Rick's such
7: a nice person, a uh, handy handyman, you know, was working on people's cars, mowing their lawns, trying to be helpful as possible as he could, you know?
1: He didn't bother
7: nobody. He would
1: ride a bicycle. She filed a civil rights lawsuit against L.A. County last year, which is still being litigated. In his deposition, executioner shot caller Jaime Juarez said that deputies in this chase were tattooed executioners.
3: And for whom were you present when that tattoo was administered? I mean...
6: Edwin Barajas, and Taylor Ingersoll.
1: On October 25th, 2019, Deputy Art Gonzalez's career seemed to be recovering. He was promoted to field training officer, completed his training with his first trainee, and the master training officer told him that he was doing his job well. Executioner Edwin Barajas, who was allegedly inked, felt otherwise. He failed Art's first trainee out of cadet training. Art stated in court documents that he believes that this was punishment to the cadet for associating with him. That wasn't the last conflict between Art and the executioners. In February 2020, Deputy and Alleged Executioner Eugene Contreras returned to Compton Station after a brief stint in internal affairs. That's the department that helps police departments investigate themselves. Contreras was now a field training officer. He allegedly threatened, and eventually assaulted a fellow training officer. That deputy texted Art about the assault, and Art made a report to Internal Affairs about the incident. It was confidential, or so he thought. Executioners were sent a recording of the phone call complaint. Art was approached by one of the deputies with whom he made the complaint about illegal arrest quotas. He told Art that the gang knew he talked to Internal Affairs it appeared as if internal affairs had been infiltrated by the deputy gang members. Here's Art in his own words under oath in 2020.
12: Deputy called to me, be very careful. They know it was you. I asked him, how do they know? He said he didn't know. He said, and again, uh, repeated uh, that they couldn't wait to get their uh, their hands on the voice band. Uh That really scared me. When I, when I heard that, it was, you know, it got very real for me. Did you fear for your life at that point? I mean, absolutely. I, I feared for my safety. Um, I, I mean, just right away, I, I just I just couldn't stop thinking about the whole thing. Um, and I just didn't know what to do.
4: At that point, did you feel that the this executioner's uh, gang was capable
12: of murder? Maybe not them directly, but um, maybe through a third party. I mean, that did cross my mind that, you know, these gang members that they jam up, uh, you know, would it be crazy to think that maybe they hire one of them to come and do a hit on me? Absolutely, that did cross my mind.
1: Art took a few days off work. He told Operations Lieutenant Ruiz that he was the one to make the complaint, but wanted to remain anonymous. Art asked for another week off, scared of retaliation, fearful for his life. During his time off, someone sprayed graffiti in a very visible section of the station. The graffiti read, Art is a rat. Deputy Alcala texted the picture to Art. Art tried to stay clear of the gang and their pending retribution. He talked with Captain Latanya Clark about his fears. She told him that investigators from the office of the executive, who work with the county board of supervisors, wanted to speak with him. The next day, investigators showed up at the station unannounced. They wanted to talk to Art at the front desk in front of other deputies. Allegedly inked executioner Anthony Bautista was serving as watch deputy. He told Art's partner, quote, "'Two IA investigators are here to talk to Gonzalez, so get over here.'" Art met with the investigators at a later point, away from people potentially eavesdropping. He told them he needed to remain anonymous due to retribution. Future meetings would have to be done away from the Compton Station. But when Art came back from his time off, that retribution came anyway. The scheduling sergeant, Frank Berrigan, chastised Art for taking time off, specifically paid family leave to take care of his daughter. Berrigan subsequently demoted Art from the position of field training officer, saying, quote, it would be a disservice to your trainee if you are taking family leave days off. To be clear, Art didn't use state-awarded time off on the days he was training the new deputy. Berrigan told Art that he could take the demotion or get documented for discipline, essentially setting him up to be fired. Art, feeling threatened, took the demotion. Berrigan gave Jaime Juarez, the alleged leader of the executioners, the position. Deputy Batista was working dispatch and routed a high volume of calls to Art. Art complained to his supervisor, Lieutenant Ruiz, who told Art to file a complaint with internal affairs. The executioners had already infiltrated IA, so Art asked to be transferred to the East LA station. The request was denied. Berrigan called Art in early 2020 and told him he was going to be placed on morning shift again. On top of that, Berrigan said that tattooed executioner Contreras would be working the day shift, which would mean overlapping schedules and possibly more harassment, or worse. Two weeks later, Art caught a break. He transferred to the detective bureau, where he'd file cases on behalf of the station at the Compton Courthouse. But Deputy Bautista was temporarily transferred there too. His desk looked like a shrine to the gang. He used a pencil holder, mouse, and mouse pad, all with the Executioner's logo on them.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
8: Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Some 41, 30 seconds from Mars. Oh, and two-door cinema club.
1: By 2020, the executioners appeared to have the Compton station in their grip. Two deputies who allegedly wanted to join their ranks were caught in a bold display of abuse. On April 13th, Then-23-year-old Jesus Alegria was at Wilson Park, skating with dozens of skaters. Deputies Miguel Vega and Christopher Hernandez pulled up to the group in the park, hands on their holsters, and started harassing them. Deputy Vega, by the way, was trained by Deputy Eugene Contreras, an executioner you heard about earlier. Jesus stood up for the other skaters, telling deputies to leave them alone. Vega and Hernandez grabbed Jesus and threw him in the back of their patrol car. They didn't handcuff him or even ask his name.
10: They kidnapped him, they took him for a joyride.
1: That's Jesus' lawyer, Christian Contreras. The deputies, in an apparent act of intimidation, took Jesus on a nearly deadly drive. He was placed in the back of a patrol car with no seatbelt, a violation of department policy, and the deputies threatened his life. They drove Jesus at high speeds through the streets, telling him they were going to throw him out of the car and into a neighborhood controlled by a gang until members, Jesus was from a rival set. The deputies also taunted him, telling him, you're scared now, huh? The duo eventually caught sight of some teenagers biking around. Vega accelerated towards the group. They all split, bolting into different directions. Hernandez chased some of the kids on foot while Vega followed one of them in a car, zooming down a narrow alleyway. One of the teens squeezed between a concrete wall and a parked car to escape. Vega thought he would follow behind and- They end up crashing the car. During the crash, Jesus's head slammed into the cage divider in the cruiser. Vega was unable to open his door. He climbed out of the window, but didn't radio anything in yet, Jesus begged the deputies to let him leave, telling him he'd tell no one what happened. Vega relented, saying, quote, get the fuck out of here.
10: So, yeah, that case is a crazy case because according to our client, these individuals looked out of their mind. They looked intoxicated. No, not sure whether they were actually high on drugs, probably not alcohol, but based upon what our client is telling us, they, they were... On something that, that got him in an altered state of mind, to engage in that type of conduct from an innocent person, a skater, someone who was just skating at a skate park, it just goes to show you that it gets more brazen and more brazen. I'm surprised they didn't kill him, so there wouldn't be any evidence.
1: Jesus' lawyer thinks the deputies were trying to get into good standing with the executioners.
10: They're kidnapping skaters in broad daylight in Compton and then taking them for a joyride just to get full membership. So it seems like as if these illegal acts are points where enough points will get you full membership into the gang and will get you that
1: ink. Jesus was covered in blood from the crash. He had a gaping gash above his eyebrow. A family unloading groceries from their car saw him come out of the alley. They gave him water and let him use their phones to call his dad. When his father arrived, Jesus was arrested by another deputy who handcuffed him and placed him in the back of a patrol car. He wasn't given medical attention for his gash until almost one hour later when he received stitches at a hospital. While at the hospital, a deputy demanded Jesus sign a citation for being under the influence of meth. Jesus signed the citation, reluctantly, after urging from his father in order to go home. Vega and Hernandez attempted to cover up the entire incident. In their version of events, the duo say Jesus was grinding his teeth, acting erratically, maybe even under the influence of something. They wrote that a large crowd gathered around Jesus, and they took him into custody, fearful that this crowd may try to help him. They said they had to flee to another location to continue investigating. Video showed what really happened and threw their account into jeopardy. The sheriff's department took the case to the DA, but prosecutors declined to file charges. Vega and Hernandez continued to work the Compton streets. And two months later, they came across 18-year-old Andres Guardado.
9: Andres Guardado was 18 years old. He grew up... Not that far from here, actually, in Koreatown in the city of Los Angeles. comes from a hardworking family that immigrated from El Salvador, and El Salvadorian culture is a big part of the family. They like dancing and listening to music. The whole family said Andres loved to dance and listen to music. He was your typical 18-year-old. He liked hanging out with friends, enjoyed sports, football, Soccer.
1: This is Nick Yoka. He is a civil rights and personal injury attorney.
9: I've been to the Guardado family home many times, but I'll never forget the first time I went to the Guardado family home, less than a week after the shooting. The family home is near a busy intersection with a lot of businesses. And the neighbors and friends of Andres started pointing out all the businesses and telling me that since Andres was a little kid, they remember him running up in working for all those businesses. By all accounts, Andres was a hard worker. He wanted to make money for his family. He dreamed of providing for his family and taking care of them. Throughout his childhood, would try to have two jobs. He was going to school. When you really think about what it is to be an 18-year-old, you're on that edge of the future of being an adult and behind you being A child and Andres would tell people all sorts of things he aspired to be dreams that he had he would tell people that he wanted to get into some sort of medical field be a doctor or nurse he even had dreams of going to the army and becoming a police officer that is what it is to be an 18 year old right it's that you have your whole life ahead of you and at that point you're dreaming big dreams during the height of the pandemic he had picked up an extra job working as a security guard in an auto body shop in Gardena.
1: Andres was too young to be a registered guard with the state of California, so this was in a more unofficial capacity. This is Memo Torres, a reporter for media outlet LA Taco, who investigated Andres's case.
11: They were just kind of paying him to kind of post up and keep an eye out at this location. Everybody talks about him as a, being a sweet kid and, you know, just working hard. I guess he just got mixed up in a weird situation.
1: On June 18th, 2020, around 6 p.m., Andres was working, standing outside of his job at Street Dynamic Auto Body in Gardena. According to witness testimony of that night, Andres was chatting up two girls and Alexis when Vega and Hernandez pulled up. They were in their patrol car parked next to the driver's side of the Lexus and got out in a hurry, guns drawn. Andres was terrified and ran. He sprinted behind the gate of the shop and went into an alley. The deputies chased him. The deputies said Andres, quote, produced a handgun and ran away. Vega fired his gun six times, hitting Andres five times in the back and killing him.
11: They just said that they were patrolling the area, they pulled up. They swear that Andres Cordado um, uh, flashed a gun at them when they were driving by, and that's why they pulled over. And that's why they pulled out guns, and that made him run. And um, Which makes no sense. Why the hell would a kid just flash a gun at a cop that's driving by the street? And then they said they recovered a weapon that was next to Andres Guardado, um, which was an illegal gun. It was like one of those uh, ghost guns, which is also questionable because we know the sheriff's department has a history of planting guns, but that's what they claim. Facts are stubborn things. You can try to alter the facts
9: all you want, but they're the facts. And here, scientific evidence found by autopsy findings are that five shots entered Andres' back. That can't be disputed. That's irrefutable. There is nothing to support that Andres was not complying with orders. Make no mistake, this was an act of excessive use of lethal force by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department against a young man. That's what the evidence is. I am familiar with the term ghost gun and the association it has with deputy gangs and deputy Involved shootings that are associated with people who are maybe prospective members of a gang. And I think it really goes to the issue of when you have cliques or subgroups or gangs within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, that it promotes a us versus them mentality and a willingness to fabricate or alter facts to fit a narrative that doesn't support finding the truth, but supports assisting each other and protecting each other at all costs.
1: Memo was the only reporter in Los Angeles who interviewed the manager of the shop where Andres worked, Andrew Haney. He disappeared shortly after this interview.
12: Wasn't a gang member, he wasn't he'd never even been so much as arrested, man. You know what I mean? He was the coolest kid. They're saying that they recovered a gun, but that's in, in the year now that I've known him. I've never known him to, to, to carry a gun. He's not a gang member, no criminal at, 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 you know, history. He never even been arrested, you know. So for for, for all this for, for all this to, to to be acted upon like this, like he's some kind of a criminal, is what he wasn't. No, there's a lot of people behind him, man, and there's a lot of people that love him and cared about him. Yeah, they got a warrant after they got it, but they—they they didn't.
11: They got the warrant after? Yeah,
12: after. Yeah, yeah. After they—they illegally they, they got into everything. Then, then they—they they, they had the place locked down, and then they got the warrant. You know, yeah. to cover themselves. This this whole thing was has been covered. I mean, it's just yeah. all the way around. Right? Nobody cams. Yeah. Presumably, yeah. police had no body cams.
5: Sure, right? yeah. literally Yeah. So it's okay.
12: just okay. everything is the, the odds are just unfavorably stacked against us, you know what
1: I'm saying? — People took to the streets to protest Andres's killing and the dubious facts given. Andres' autopsy would have brought some more conclusive evidence to the public, but Sheriff Alex Villanueva placed the document on a so-called security hold shortly after it was completed that June that could have sealed autopsy results for months, even years. The Guardado family ordered a private autopsy that found their son was shot in the back five times. Los Angeles County Chief Medical Examiner Coroner, Dr. Jonathan Lucas defied Villanueva's hold and released his autopsy findings in July. Lucas said in a statement, quote, I believe that government can do its part by being more timely and more transparent in sharing information that the public demands and has a right to see. The county's autopsy concurred with the private one. Andres had died in a homicide. Here's Art Gonzalez, the executioner whistleblower, again. How
4: about this latest shooting of Andres Guardado? Um Was that done by an Inc. member or a prospect of the executioners? Uh, prospect. And who was that prospect?
12: Do you know? Blacks uh, uh, Foundation.
6: Speculation and conjecture on the parlor witness.
12: Deputy Vega and Deputy
13: Hernandez.
1: Kate Cagle, anchor at Spectrum News 1, led reporting on this explosive deposition testimony.
13: That's what got, you know, Congresswoman Maxine Waters involved. She references that video in her letter to the U.S. Department of Justice asking them to open an investigation. And people are just so incredulous that... There could even be any kind of credible accusation that something like that could happen in 2020. It was one of those first times it was a deputy on camera openly saying what the community had been saying for so long. He's had a really tough time.
1: In November 2020, the Los Angeles Board of Supervisors ordered an inquest into the killing of Andres. A judicial examination challenging law enforcement's official findings of an event hasn't been done for nearly 30 years. Vega and Hernandez were asked to testify at the inquest. Hernandez did, but pleaded the fifth, answering no questions. Vega didn't attend. He was out of the country. Instead, he sent a declaration stating he would plead the fifth too.
13: The deputies who did show up all pled the fifth. And then that's when we learned the Deputy Vega, the deputy who had actually shot and killed the teenager, was in Mexico for the inquest and did not attend. And then there was a lot of questions around, what do you mean he's been allowed to leave the country? Isn't he under investigation for what happened? That was the incident that really triggered a lot of people to start paying attention to what was happening.
1: Retired Court of Appeals judge Candace Cooper felt calling more witnesses and obtaining more evidence wasn't necessary, concluding the inquest. That means the sheriff's department's account of Andres' death is the official version, unless the district attorney files charges and there is a criminal trial.
9: I believe it was the first inquest that had been done in the county of Los Angeles since the 70s or 80s, it made clear that the sheriff's department wasn't going to comply and that we needed better ways to enforce compliance and oversight. The sheriff's department was not present to present evidence and assist the public or the county in knowing the facts. That's very similar to what we see in all sorts of cases. That's what I took away from the inquest.
1: Vega and Hernandez were suspended in December 2020 for crashing their patrol car with Jesus Alegria inside. The Guardado family filed a civil rights lawsuit against LA County, which was recently recommended for a settlement of $8 million. Taxpayers will be on the hook. Art Gonzalez's case was recently dismissed.
13: Art's case was very complicated. You know, Villanueva likes to tout that the retaliation claim was thrown out, but his lawyer was always fighting with the judge over admissible evidence in that case. And the judge in that case had said that any testimony or evidence about an alleged deputy gang was irrelevant and inadmissible. So it really tied their hands as far as making the argument because from their point of view, this alleged deputy gang was an integral part of his retaliation claim because he was claiming that he was not able to get time off because he was not part of the group, this shadow group that was actually running the station.
1: We've got four episodes left of this audio investigation thanks so much for listening. I'm going to be taking next week off from reporting for the holidays, but we'll have a special episode for you next Wednesday. Before I go, I have a request. I want to hear from you. What are some of your questions about the deputy gangs? We're going to have a special episode answering questions, so please send them to lasdgangs at gmail.com. H-double-O-D,
7: the whole
3: hood know me. Fuck the police, I'm a fucking hood trophy. You've been listening to A Tradition of Violence, the history of deputy gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Hosted and executive produced by Cerise Castle, music by Yellow Hill and Steeles. We want to hear from you. If you have a question about deputy gangs or the LASD, please send an email to lasdgangs at gmail.com. For breaking news and updates on deputy gangs, follow at LASD Gangs on social media. To support Cerise's reporting and for exclusive bonus content, subscribe to the LASD Gangs Patreon. If you're enjoying A Tradition of Violence, please give us a five-star rating and leave a written review.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.